0: Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christchurch Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. All right, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. The sermon title this morning is The Staggering Consequences of justification, the staggering consequences of justification. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help and trust that he'll bring it. We pray to a God that hears and answers prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we open your word and we need help to understand. Help us to think clearly. Help us to understand what's being said and be changed by it. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you love us that your love has been shed abroad our hearts, poured into our hearts. Not that we would be able to chant that we love you, we love you, we love you, but that we would be able to hear from the Holy Spirit that you love us, that you love us, that you love us. And I pray for every person here this morning that they would be able to understand by your grace that you love us, that you do love, and we thank you for it. Lead us, I trust that you will, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, let's do what what I did last week here to begin with, which is basically bring you up to speed and give you somewhat of a summary statement of what's been going on in the book of Romans. And we're making a pretty important turn in the book of Romans this morning. We've walked through chapters 1 through 4 and been dealing with the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone to God be the glory of glory alone. And Paul has labored to prove his point over and over again that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot be saved by works of the law, but we are saved by grace through faith alone. We don't help God save us. We don't contribute anything to our salvation. We are saved by grace through faith. And Paul has been through argument after argument to explain that point through the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, because we are saved by grace through faith in God's power alone and not in our power, we are assured of our salvation because the promise of of grace, the promise of God rests on grace and not on works of the law. Salvation rests firmly, firmly on the foundation of God's grace. Therefore, we are safe. We are assured of what's to come in the future. We are assured of our salvation. God is doing this in us for his good pleasure. We are saved. We are forgiven. We are counted righteous. We are justified by God. The highest court of all the courts, the Supreme Court of all Supreme Court, the gavel has been slammed down, and we are declared not just forgiven, but counted righteous, justified in the greatest court of all law. God has saved us. We are saved. And with that foundation, this is crucial. It's crucial to understand this as we move forward in this book. With that foundation of chapters 1 through 4, we move into chapters 5 through 8, and we start out looking at the consequences, the good consequences of our justification in the life of a believer and what that ends up doing, which is leads us into a life of sanctification, of spiritual growth. We are now on this road of, of growing in Christ, walking in Christ, obeying God's word, and we're just wanting to follow Jesus more every day. And, and since we've been justified... Now let's move on and let's talk about, not that we move on from justification in the sense of walking away from ever considering it or contemplating it or relishing in it. But we now ask the question, how do we grow in Christ? How do we walk with God? What does life as a believer look like? We are now becoming more like Jesus and more like our true selves. And here's the truth of, God, of God's word and reality in and of itself. God is not simply concerned with forgiving our sins. Although that is massively important, clearly, massively important, he is also into this work of making us holy, that we are becoming better. I don't want to be the same man that I was last year, this year. And God is working in us all the things that he has declared to be true about us, he is now in the process of making actually true about us. He is making us more and more like Jesus. We are declared righteous. And now he's in the work through the power of the Holy Spirit within us, making us more and more and more like Jesus. And it may feel like at times in this walk of sanct- in this walk with, with Christ in sanctification, it may feel like we're, we're taking like 10 steps forward. But then it feels like we're, we're literally falling 9 steps back or 10 steps back or 50 steps back. But over the course of our lifetime, as we're walking with the Lord, slowly it may seem like at times, more fast at times, we are walking and becoming more and more Like Jesus, this is what God is doing in us. And a a quick word of caution as we move into these chapters. And I'm not going to be caveating it and giving us cautions every single week. But a quick word of caution. Without the foundation of chapters 1 through 4, without knowing that we are justified by grace through faith, apart from works of the law, we cannot understand spiritual growth. We cannot understand sanctification if we do not understand justification. Because the enemy in the flesh will put us back on a treadmill and say, get to work over and over again. And we will confuse Christian sanctification, growing in Christ, with trying to save ourselves. And so that foundation is so, so crucial. Sanctification, spiritual growth, life in Christ is not about earning favor from God. It is about living a life of gratitude. Many of you, we know this. Okay, It's a living a life of gratitude. We are grateful for what God has done for us in Christ Therefore, we want to obey him. We want to obey. We love our heavenly Father. We love our big brother Jesus, and we want to follow him. We want to obey all that God has for us to do. Sanctification's root is firmly planted and grows out of the soil of justification. It is finished, the declaration of Christ on the cross. It is finished is the fuel, is the diet, is the energy ...for the Christian life. It's the explosion that propels us forward. I'm justified. Now, because of that, I want to obey. I want to obey God. I want to walk with Him. Not to be saved, but because I am saved. And we see it starting in verse 1. Look at verse 1 through 5. And then we'll go slowly through it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... okay, Let's just pause right here. The structure of the argument from 1 through 4... ...leading up to 5. Since we have been, past tense, have been justified... Justified is something now that is true. If you're in Christ, you have been justified. Again, a reminder, Christianity is the only religion in the world that declares that you're justified on the front end. You don't have to wait to try to be justified one day after you die. The judgment has come down. We have been justified. And now that we have been justified, what now? And that's what we're dealing with. Since we have been justified, we have peace with God through faith, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him... We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Therefore, since we have been justified, we have two big things that come out For us to consider, one, we have peace with God. Since we have been justified, we now have peace with God. Since justification is a fact, we objectively, right now, have peace with God. Remember that great movie, Forrest Gump, Lieutenant Dan. Remember Lieutenant Dan? Lieutenant Dan wanted his peace with God by the end. And he said some vulgar and terrible things about the Lord. But at the end of his life, Forrest Gump said, I think he found peace with God. Billy Graham's first published book was called Peace with God. People desire, even in their fallen state, some sort of peace in their life. Because of Romans 1 and suppressing the truth, they don't want peace in the right way. But peace in life is something that people are in search of. There is vain approaches to find peace. But for the Christian, we actually have peace. The peace of God is ours. We have peace with God, but what does that peace mean? What does the peace of God mean? That we actually have peace with God? We don't know if Lieutenant Dan actually got peace with God through repentance and faith, but by the grace of God, those who have been justified actually have peace instead of turmoil or peace instead of wrath. God has been appeased because of what Christ has done. His wrath has been absorbed, extinguished, done away with for you. God's wrath has been completely done away with for you. Therefore, we now, right now, objectively, as objectively as we have been forgiven, have peace with God. It's immovable. It's there right now for you. There's nothing between you and God that causes him to remove the status of peace. If you've been justified, you have the peace of God. The peace of God is with you right now. It's objective and immovable. Peace with God is not something that we will fall in and out of. God's wrath being done away with is not something that comes back the next time we sin or struggle. If we wonder, if your heart is prone, like the great hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And you have seasons where doubt comes raging in and you feel like you're walking off the path and you're hearing things from God, but you're not wanting to obey. And the struggle of spiritual growth feels like absolute warfare, as the scriptures declare it is, the peace of God still remains upon you. God's peace is yours. It's not disagreement. It's not hatred. It's not discord. It's not agitation. It's not war against God. It's not disharmony. When we come to God in prayer, no matter what, when we're justified, if we have been justified, we have peace with God. And so when we come to pray, and we've heard this before, I think I've said it, or somebody has before, who's preached here. When we think about being frustrated with God, or frustrated with our lives, and we go to God in prayer, and and we're fighting through wanting to come to Him in prayer and, you know, feeling like we need to do some things beforehand. When we come to God in prayer, because we have been justified, God is not looking at us. When we come to Him in prayer to our Heavenly Father, He's not looking with us with agitation. He's not looking, with, looking at us with frustration. We actually have peace with God, and so we come to Him. He's not angry with us. We can come to Him in prayer knowing that we are His son and we are His daughter. We have actual peace with God right now. Here's the difficulty. Living like that is actually true. Living like that is actually true. Believing it. And since we have been justified, we have peace with God. God's peace is not shifting sand. It's not a feather blowing about in the breeze to pull another Forrest Gump phrase in. It's firm and it is absolutely immovable. It's not being moved. By grace, believe God right now. You have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you have been justified, we have peace with God. It's good news. Also, there's more. Also, another staggering consequence of justification is through him. Something is true. Through him, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Verse 2. Notice how these things are past tense. We have obtained. It's it's, it's ours. Because we have been justified, it's now in our presence. It's past tense. It's a present reality. And now this standing in the Greek has in in view here not just a standing, one-time standing, but this has a future tense reality to it. That This standing is a positional standing that's going to be true not just right now, but tomorrow and in the future. Because we have been justified, we have access into this grace through him that we now stand in. We have access. And we are standing in this grace. This grace is wondrous. It's not closed off to us. We live in the world of grace. The world of grace. In the world of grace, there are staggering, wonderful, beautiful things to discover. I've said it before, if... if, the grace of God or of Jesus Christ is the where where we find all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That are found in him. If he is the place where we find all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, we kind of consider a shoreline or an ocean line that we just look out and we just see this ocean as long and as far as the eye can see, and the water laps into the sand, and we just look down and we see the sunset or the sunrise, depending upon the direction we're facing. But we look at that shoreline and we look at it, and if we just could imagine walking that shoreline, and that shoreline is a shoreline of grace, there are treasures to discover in that shoreline. They're buried. You may say, I I don't see them. Well, they're just right under the surface. And if you'll just walk a few steps and dig a little bit, you'll discover more of God's grace. You'll discover more treasures that we find in Christ. You'll see them. Just do a little bit of digging and you'll see them. And we could look at that shoreline and say, well, they're not there. I don't see them. Well, they are there. Just get out the metal detector a little bit. Open your Bible and go and walk a little bit and just do a little bit of digging. And in this world of grace, you'll you'll, you'll find more treasures. You'll find more of Christ. We have access now, because we have been justified, into the world of grace. The world of grace, there's wonderful things. And here are a couple things, just a couple couple things of grace that we now have access to. And number one is standing. We stand. We have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Grace in which we stand. This is a positional and ongoing standing. The place we are now in, in this life, our location, and the place we will be in the future, is a place of grace. By faith in Christ, since we have been justified, we have access into this place. And these things are facts. They're objectively true. God is telling justified people that there are certain things that are true about us. And as we consider our very selves, when we think about our life, our walk with God, where we are in this world, what is true about us, we need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the place we stand is in the favor of God. And many believers, unfortunately, even many people who have doctrinal things right and in order and believe in the doctrines of grace, we actually do not believe these things to be a reality. We don't practically live like that at all. Unbelief is the opiate of Christian masses really is. Unbelief of, of not believing what's actually true. We don't actually true that obje- truly believe that objectively we are standing right now in the place of grace. Amen. Right now. And the enemy in the flesh, you know, the enemy shoots his arrows and the flesh rises up and says, Yes, 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 that's true. I love that. I love that. I was under grace yesterday, but now I'm not under the favor and grace of God today. But because we have been justified... We now stand in the very grace of God. It's the place that we stand and it's the place that we will stand. Face your life with this knowledge. We stand in grace. As we talk about sanctification and why I think this is so crucial as we move forward, because as we make this shift in the book of Romans, it's like Paul is wanting to remind us again before we're reminded about union with Christ later in this chapter. Before we talk about suffering here in a second, be reminded that the place you stand before you walk this road of suffering in this world, know that before you walk into suffering, when you're in suffering, you're still under the place of grace. You're still positionally in the place of grace. For the Christian who knows that they stand in the grace of God, the favor of God, when suffering comes, and it will come in our life, when it comes, we can be sure that it's not coming because we're under God's wrath. The peace of God remains when life gets tough. The grace of God remains when things become difficult. And if we don't know that, we're going to be in a place of difficulty when things do get tough. And we're going to wonder, God, why are we not in your favor? Why do we not have peace? What's going on? And suffering at times is very, very hard. And we need to have a rock-solid foundational understanding to know that I'm a child of God, I'm under the favor of God, no matter what comes my way, it's for my good. Even if I never connect the dots of how it's for my good, even if it feels arbitrary, God is for me, and I stand under the mighty hand of God, which is a gracious hand holding on to me. But Many believers, like I said, and myself, struggle with unbelief. And so we talk about sanctification, we really have to be certain about these things that, that God has me. That I stand under his grace. And because of that, we rejoice. We rejoice. This is another consequence of God's grace, of God's work and justification. This access that we have by grace is not just that we stand in grace, but we also get to rejoice because of it. We rejoice. Look at the second part of verse verse 2 And we rejoice in the hope of glory. We rejoice in the hope of glory. God's grace and our standing in it results in rejoicing. Have you ever been exhilarated because God's favor is upon you? You remember the grace awakenings we had. Remember when that you read Chuck Colson's book, Grace Awakening. Remember that, Dan? Was it Colson, Swindoll, Grace Awakening? Remember, you may have been walking with the Lord for years, and remember that when the gospel light bulbs begin to go off. Wait a minute, my sins are forgiven. I remember sitting with my friend Nick. Nick Mosca, and Nick is now in, in uh, uh, where is Nick and Lorraine again? Uh, what's the name? New Guinea? Papua New Guinea? Missionaries in Papua New Guinea? And I remember sitting with Nick, and he had been walking with the Lord for a couple of years, and for some reason the light bulb just went off, that his sins are forgiven. All, all of his sins are forgiven, past, present, and future sins. And what, what feels so basic to our understanding went from being a basic creedal statement, my sins are forgiven, to true of him, and it rocked his world. It changed his life. And do you remember those moments of, of God's grace? They feel so tangible to you. It may be singing a song, words in a song, uh, He will hold me fast, and He will hold me fast. The words just kind of, they, they penetra- penetrate your ear, and they go in your ear, and instead of singing them kind of unconsciously and going out the other ear, it's like the Holy Spirit took that moment to drag that down into your heart, and your heart started beating and fluttering a little bit more and, and deeper, and, and those words became a reality to you. We've had these moments where we just rejoice over the grace of God. Maybe a moment where tears flow. It may be a moment where you just sit in silence for 30 minutes, an hour. It may be a song that came on the radio and you just sing it the rest of the day and you're just singing about the grace of God over your life. But we've had those moments where we rejoice because of God's grace. And if you've not, I pray that you do have those moments where you rejoice over God's good work in your life. And we rejoice in the hope of glory. It's a specific kind of rejoicing. It's not just a rejoicing over temporary blessings that God gives, but it's a specific kind of rejoicing, the hope of glory. And our hope of glory is certain and it is secure for us right now. And as we think about God's grace to us in our past and we consider it in our future, we, we begin to rejoice. We think about the future of our lives and eternity. It's being it's secure, it's in the hand of God. What do I have to worry about? And the Bible tells us that these are reasons to rejoice. When I think about me, Jared Sparks, four billion years from now, still existing. It gets a little creepy, scary for a moment. But when I think about eternal joy four billion years from now, and knowing you guys, walking with you guys, living life for eternity, walking with Jesus, living on this earth restored four billion years from now, and we're still not bored. That's pretty wonderful. A lot of eternity can scare us because we think that anything in this life, if we do it enough, we would get bored with. Because we don't have an understanding of eternity. God is so glorious that we'll never be bored. And what if you can do something in this life? You know, we think about the things we love doing the most in this life. And even the things we love to do the most of, there gets to be a time where we're like, okay, that's enough. Like, okay, I've, I've went down enough water slides now. And I'm done. Uh, even wrestling and fighting with my children. I love wrestling and fighting with my sons. It's just, there's something about body slamming a little boy that's just, you just, it's glorious, heavenly. And he loves it. You know, he absolutely loves it. But there's moments where you're like, okay, I'm done. Even though this is amazing, I'm just done. I can't go on anymore, okay? Dates with our spouses are amazing. It's amazing. And you go on vacation, and how incredible is vacation? But there comes a point in vacation When you're having a great time with your wife and you're enjoying it and, and, you know, the more and more responsibilities grow the longer you want your vacations to be. You know, like, I'm not ready to go back. But there becomes a time time where you're just ready to get back to normal life because even the greatest things in this life have a shelf life of enjoyment. We think about eternity, the hope of glory, the hope of our glory, of actually being with the Lord and that being secure. Some of the things that terrify us is we can't imagine not being bored. We can't imagine a scenario where there are things to do that it it won't just get stale. But our hope of glory is that we will actually be happy, really, truly, we'll have real joy. And it will be forever and ever and ever. And there won't be a moment where we'll be like, I'm done with this. Eh, let's, let's go home. I'm ready for the things to go back to normal. Full joy, really. Do you struggle with happiness right now? I mean, honestly, even when I ask the question, you think... I shouldn't, because these things are a reality. I shouldn't struggle with happiness. You struggle with joy, just, just living life and really enjoying life. If you're in Christ, if you've been justified, you have the hope of glory secured for you. Happiness, eternal happiness is coming your way. Forever and ever and ever and ever. No fear, no disappointment. It's truly yours. And we rejoice in this. The hope of glory. Biblical hope is not a pipe dream hope. It's not a wish dream hope. Biblical hope is absolutely certain. It's a fixed reality that we hope in. It's not I hope that this is going to come true, like I hope I get to do this or get to do that. Biblical biblical hope is hoping in something that is an absolute reality. It is coming our way. And for many of us, even the oldest of us in this room, we have lived a fraction of our existence out in this world. We have eternity ahead of us. An absolute eternity ahead of us. For our existence, our eternal existence, we have lived such a small portion of it. And the hope of glory that we're living with day in and day out that we rejoice in is that God has me forevermore. And my life for the eternity of my existence is not going to include suffering, pain, turmoil, boredom. I will live with eternal happiness, eternal joy, with no sorrow, with Jesus himself, Wiping away every single tear. There will be no more. Talk about power to face the day. Knowing that our our standing, our future, our glory is absolutely secure. Come what may, I'm in Christ. My future is certain. What do I have to be afraid of today? But again, the opiate of the Christian masses is unbelief. Because glorious truths like that come into our mind. We think about them on Sunday morning. And then Tuesday, when things are tough, we forget. And we get worried again, or we get fearful again, or we get scared again, or get thinking, God, are you really for me again? But this truth of our certain hope in the future helps us not just rejoice when things are good, and when we're thinking about, you know, these things, we're singing uh, on Jordan storm, whatever. And we think about walking into Canaan, we sing that, you know, the girls sing their part, and the guys sing their part, and we're thinking about walking into glory forevermore. You know, walking into Canaan, we see it. It's right there. We're walking in, and no no sickness can hit, hit that joyful shore. We're singing this, we're thinking about it, and it's amazing. What about Tuesday when things are hard? What about sickness and death? And what about persecution? What can this certain hope in the future do for us when things get tough? Look at verse 3. Not only that, so rejoicing in the hope of glory. Not only that, when we think about it, when we sing about it, but not only that. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Not only do we rejoice when we sing and think about such glorious things. Not only do we rejoice when we kind of mine that gospel beach and find a new treasure in Christ. Not only do we rejoice when we consider those things. When we suffer and things get hard and we cry and we hurt so bad from the inside that the emotions do come out. Not only that, this certain future hope can give us power to somehow rejoice in those moments. And I want us to think through these things because life is amazing. And we get to smile and laugh a lot. And I want us to be, by the grace of God, happy people, thinking that life is not just some dreary, hard thing. But here's the truth. Even for the greatest joy and all the joys that we experience in life, you guys know this, life can also be really, really hard. It just can be. The struggles of life, the difficulties of life, the pain, death, watching people suffer, there are some really hard things. The shootings that just happened this weekend, when we think about those things, thinking about the abortion clinic, there's, there's just a lot of really hard things, you know? And then when you think about teenagers, like going to school can be really stressful, it can be really hard. Think about the test that's coming up. Or you see people around you and you, you want to be in the cool crowd, or you want to be better at sports, or better at whatever you want to be better at, it can be very, very hard. And here the Bible tells us that we can rejoice in suffering, and I almost want to kind of pull, you know clear my ears out a little bit because it feels almost offensive. Like, really, rejoice in suffering? We rejoice in our sufferings, and we rejoice not only in suffering, not only in the hope of glory, but rejoice in our sufferings. I can only cry in my sufferings. How can I rejoice in my sufferings? But yes, rejoice. God actually has the audacity to tell this to us, to command it. Rejoice in suffering. and Let me just ask you to consider a few things as we think about this. If justification is secure, and we have peace with God, and we are under the favor of God, and we are His sons and daughters of God, and that's firm, fixed, and unmovable. And if our future is secure, then we have to look at suffering different, differently than the rest of the world looks at suffering or even differently than the world looks at suffering. God has good purposes for our suffering. That's why he doesn't remove it all. Because he wants something more for us than simply the removal of the suffering. There is temptation in all of us to feel like when things get hard that suffering is arbitrary. And I just want to be clear that that this is not going to untie all the knots because there there are things in in life that feel arbitrary and you don't ever get your answers of, oh, that's why God allowed me to go through that. Oh, that's why God intentioned that. It doesn't always kind of tie together like the story of Joseph does. You know, the story of Joseph ties together. Yeah, it wasn't you, brothers, who sent me to Egypt. It was God who sent me here so I could take care of you and many, many people during the famine. It doesn't always come together like that. And there's going to be unanswered questions in life that we're going to take to the grave. We're just going to have to hold on to the goodness of God and just believe, I didn't. I never got my answers, but God, thank you that I have you. Amen. However, there are things that we can consider that can help us if we are in suffering and then prepare us when we do walk into it one day or God walks with us into it. God is so good that he is willing to walk with us into suffering. Bring us into it. Hold our hand into it. And he's so good that he will walk with us in suffering. Meaning he's not going to walk you into it and and then kind of pat you on the back and say, you got this. Walk off and just kind of arbitrarily watch and just maniacally sit back as you weep and cry. He's going to walk with us in it. And then he's going to walk us out of it. For our good. Not just for suffering's sake. There is a prosperity gospel mantra that's out there. And I I sympathize with it. and, And it goes like this. God does not want anybody to be sick or God does not want anybody to be poor. It almost feels like a trap because the opposite of that, the opposite of that seems to be this. God does want people to be sick and does want people to be poor. And that's not true either. Okay? God wants something more for us than either of those two scenarios. He wants something more for us. God wants something more for us than a life of no sickness and no pain and no difficulty. He wants something more for us. So it's not just, well, God doesn't want you to be this or this or that. It's also not that God wants you to be sick and poor. It's that God wants something more for you than riches or poverty or anything like that. He's more concerned with what's happening inside of us from the inside out. He is doing something in us. So the gospel, the opposite isn't, well, just God wants you to be sick, but it's God wants something. Creature comfort, creaturely comfort is not God's highest will for us. Creaturely comfort is not God's highest will for us. It's not his highest goal for our lives. Suffering is not arbitrary. It's not God just kind of maniacally pulling the strings, watching us squirm as he watches us in sickness and in pain. That's not what's happening at all when we suffer. Suffering, we're told, actually produces something. There's something going on here. And if God would give us the eyes, if we would have the eyes to see and the faith, I believe, help my unbelief, we would see it, and we would see, okay, God, this is, God is tenderly loving me here. I, I, this is really hard, and it's really painful. And again, I may not never get answers that I want. But here's what God does clearly say to us when we do walk into suffering, when we do walk into pain, when we do want, walk into life's difficult questions, is that God is up to something. Suffering is for good purposes in the believer's life. And as surely as we have been justified, we can know this to be an absolute fact. So plant your flag in the ground and know that nothing comes your way is arbitrary. Nothing that comes your way is purposeless. Nothing that comes your way is simply demonic attack or random events. God is working in you and God is producing something in the Christian sufferer. And so because suffering is doing something, because God is at work in us, therefore, in our sufferings, we are rejoicing. Rejoice. God is at work. God is producing something. So what is God producing? We get these three things. God is, number one, he's producing endurance. We rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance. And friends, God wants endurance for you more than he wants you to not be in pain or not to suffer or not to face any difficulties. He wants you to endure because endurance is a good thing. Two examples of endurance. There are people, I remember this, I saw this in basketball growing up and in athletics. And if you don't know athletics, I'm going to use a cooking example. Um, And if if you're not into athletics or cooking, you're just out of luck this morning, I'm sorry. Um, But when you run and do line sprints for basketball, it is not fun. It is not fun. Or when you do the two-a-days or three-a-days, I don't know if people do that anymore in football. I heard somebody say recently, just 20 years ago, football coaches would do these things. I forget what they were called, but basically you had to run until one or two things happened. You either threw up or passed out. And you couldn't stop until you either threw up or passed out. And there was like a name for it, okay? That's how much things have changed now. We have to have water like every five seconds and pats on the back and hugs from coaches and stuff. Uh, But running is a crucial role that doesn't feel like it to begin with. And the person who doesn't run line sprints but boldly declares, what's the point of this? It's the person who cannot later perform on the field. And God wants us to endure more than he wants us to be perfectly healthy and comfortable, free of pain, persecution, and difficulty. He wants to build endurance in us. Jordan loves cooking sourdough bread. I love, sour- I love eating sourdough bread, so it works out really well. And she has this recipe with chocolate in it, and it's just so good. And she makes a sourdough. How long did it take, babe, to, to learn how to, like, to start the starter, the sourdough bread? It, how many loaves had to be thrown away, you think? I mean, it was like months of just, I mean, it was hard. She had to keep, it was like, how does, in the air, yeast, like the flour and the water and yeast somehow catches, and she, she ended up doing it, which is, I'm thankful, okay? She endured, and she had to throw a lot of dough away. Had to throw a lot of flour. It was like flour everywhere. And when Jordan works with flour, it gets everywhere. You know, I'm like with the rag, you know, it's just flour everywhere. But she, is, she learned endurance, and now we enjoy bread. It's really good. And friends, we all know this that so like if, if you don't put in the, the, there's it, the, this, this work on the front end, then on the back end, you're wildly unprepared. And suffering in us produces endurance, and God wants us to endure. That's what he wants for us. He wants to be people who endure the difficulties of life and rejoice along the way. And endurance, then, as suffering produces endurance, and God's behind it all producing it in us, endurance produces character. And God is building us into people of character. It is a good thing to want to be a man or woman of character. Who are you when nobody's looking? When nobody's looking, who are you? Sometimes I do embarrassing things when nobody is looking. The other day, my father in law was with me. We were working on this Jeep, and I thought I was going to have to take the tires off again because the brake pads were not put on the right way. Jeff helped me out with that. But I put them on, did, got it all done, I thought, and it wasn't right. And you know what? Out of anger, I went and I hit with my palm my window. My father in law saw that, and I saw that. That's foolish. And it's childish. And it was out of anger. That's, that's a character issue that needs to change. I don't want my kids to see that. Who are you when nobody is looking? People who get whatever they want are not the kind of people who have character. People who get whatever they want, whenever they want it, turn up to be grown-up adult jerks, brats, entitled. And God does not want that for us. He is building us to be men and women of character forged by fire. And character, it ends up producing hope. Character produces hope. That's what the text says. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Only God can intend suffering for us so that we would be people of hope and not people of sorrow. God intends suffering for us to produce these things in us, to end not with sorrow, not with being an Eeyore the rest of our lives, from poo-bear, walking around dreary, sorry, sad, whining, complaining, but all these things are intended to us to build in us being people of hope, hopeful people in suffering. The suffering does not beat us up, it makes us hopeful because God is at work in us. Hope is the result of baptized suffering. When you know you stand in grace, then anything that comes your way, it's not because God is angry with you. You are certain and firm in the fact and reality that this is for my good. Whatever comes my way, come what may, this is for my good. Nothing can come my way that isn't for my good. And when we believe that, no matter what happens in our life, by the grace of God, we can face it with our eyes looking right at it, not ignoring it, and knowing, this is for my good. God's going to do something amazing. God is at work in my life. We are not alone. In the life of a believer, suffering is not a sign of God's absence or his anger. It is a sign of his presence and his commitment to us. Suffering is not a sign of God's absence from us or anger at us. It's a sign of his presence And his commitment to us. And we are not alone. He is making us better, stronger, more capable, more hopeful people. Therefore, we rejoice. When it comes our way, when Tuesday's hard, look at it. Smile, laugh, and say, God, I know you're at work. I know you're at work. When the tears start flowing, remind yourself, this is so painful. But God, I'm going to rejoice through it because I know you're at work. And nothing that comes my way comes my way that isn't for my good, no matter what it is. For the Christian, suffering results in hope. We become hopeful, not hopeless. The Christian, man or woman, by the grace of God, is a hopeful person. And hope does not put itself to shame. Look at verse 5, it continues on. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. No shame. This hope we have is not going to make us look foolish. It's not going to make us, uh, others may think we look foolish, but it's not going to make us foolish. Hope does not put us to shame. Being certain about our future, being hopeful in suffering, being certain that we belong to God, does not bring shame upon us. It doesn't make make us feel embarrassed or icky. We will not be put to shame. Why? Because you get that which you hope for. We know hope is coming and we will one day get it and we will not be put to shame. And there's a big because here. Because here's why we won't be put to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love, God has done something very personal to you. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit of God within you. And God has poured His love Put his love inside of you. Poured his love inside of you. It's like he's taken his love, if a love is a pitcher, and he's poured it out, and it's landed on you, and it's went down deep into your bones, into your very soul itself, into the inner being, into his, into your very heart. And this is not God love pouring your love of him into his heart, into your heart. This is God personally pouring his love into your heart through the Holy Spirit. God's love poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the Holy Spirit, and this is so kind of God, do you want to hear about God's love, how much He loves you? We're going to see in Romans 5.8, this is how God shows His love for you, that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. But it's even more personal in the sense that the Holy Spirit comes and reminds us these things, reminds us these things over and over again. You're loved by God. God loves you. You are His son. You are His daughter. A smoldering wick He will not put out. Flax He will not break. You are loved by God. God loves you. You're a child of God. The Holy Spirit comes and reminds us Reminds us time and time again that we are loved by God even when we are suffering. The Holy Spirit works in the life of a believer to remind us what we need to be reminded of daily. God loves you. God loves you. Do you know that? God really loves you. As surely as, he, as we love sons and daughters. His love is so much more than that because we have a million reasons why we love our sons and daughters. There are a million conditions that our kids meet that qualify them to be loved by us. But God's love is so much greater than that that there were no conditions that we have met and God loves us to a greater degree than we love our children. And the Holy Spirit reminds us, just, you're loved. God loves you. You're not forgotten. The God of the entire cosmos loves me, Jared Sparks. Jared Sparks is loved by God. You are loved by God. And this internal testimony that we have, the Holy Spirit's working. He takes what is Jesus's and delivers it to us, and he glorifies Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes and reminds us of the things of Jesus. I'm loved by God because of Jesus. I've been justified. I'm being cared for and taken care of. He will provide for all of my needs. Nothing that comes my way is not for my good. It is for my good. And the Holy Spirit reminds us even this morning, hey, you're loved. What Jared's saying today, what God's word says today, that's true. You're loved by God. You're loved by God. You're loved by God. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter how difficult this week is or was, you are loved by God. And God has been so kind to give us His Holy Spirit, to whisper and to scream, Your Father loves you. Your Father loves you. Your Father loves you. And that will not be removed. That's what God has done for you. Hear the Spirit this morning. Remind you, whisper and scream, You are loved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Remind us of these things. Because we are justified, there are so many things that are now true of us. Things that were not true before. We could not bank on God, your special love, before we were Christians. We could, in a general way, say that you loved us, but now we know. Your love has been poured in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We know that you love us. And this morning, I pray that we respond to that. I pray we would glory in that and rejoice in that. Help us to sing. Holy Spirit lead, I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Let's stand. If anybody wants to be prayed for or with, I can come. You can come forward and I would love to pray and pray with you and for you. Let's follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and let's sing to King Jesus.